Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Revelation, chapter 2. over a year ago I preached a sermon on the, the letter to the church in Pergamos and because of that I'm going to skip that tonight and move on to verse 18 of Roman, Revelation chapter 2 and deal with the letter to the church in Thyatira. There's much similarity between the two as you who are familiar with them will notice I believe it would be the better use of our time to move along and not go over the same territory again, which you could get in the tape on the letter to the church at Pergamos. So follow as I read Revelation chapter 2, beginning with verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, These things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet like fine brass. I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience or perseverance. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and beguile my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time or space to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. But to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine and who have not known the depths of Satan, as they call them, I will put on you no other burden, but hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works unto the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the potter's vessels shall be broken to pieces, as I also have received from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now this evening, it is my purpose to introduce this letter to the church at Thyatira, give something of a brief background of the city and the church, and then lead you in a consideration of the first half of this epistle 
through verse 23, largely concentrating on those elements that are found in those first several verses. There's so much here that to attempt to do it all in one sermon would be futile and not very considerate of you. Now, this letter is the largest of all the seven letters sent to the churches in Asia Minor. And yet, Thyatira is the least important, at least as far as men are concerned, of all the seven cities. It was not a very prominent city, uh, had been used in years past as as an outpost to guard against attacks on neighboring cities, and was not itself considered to be very much by the Macedonians who had founded it as an outpost. Thyatira was a trade city on the main imperial post road, very important in the sense that in order to get anywhere into these seven churches in Asia Minor, you would go through Thyatira. It linked Pergamos to Sardis. It extended all the way to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. It was known to be a commercial town. In Thyatira, we learned that there were many trade guilds. Trade guilds abounded. In fact, the trade guilds are significant in understanding the letter because the trade guilds undoubtedly put much pressure on members of the church to join them. You could hardly get a good job unless you were a member of one of the trade guilds, and you were on the outs with them unless you cooperated with them. One of the practices of the trade guilds was that they all shared communal meals. In other words, they ate together virtually every day. Your guild met for a banquet or for meals each day. And normally, or at least not unusually, the trade guilds met in a local temple, at the idol's temple. And to introduce their meeting at the meal, they would make a sacrifice in public to the god. And then in the closing of their meeting, they would make another sacrifice to the god. Now, in order to get a good job, you pretty much had to belong to the trade guild. In order to belong to the trade guild, you have to get along with the guys that uh, you need to get along with. In order to do that, you would not want to miss the lunch meetings. And in order to go to the lunch meetings, you would not want to be a stick in the mud. And so the pressure would be on you not to say anything about the idol worship and the practices that were part of the culture. Do you get something of the impression as to what the pressure was in the church of Thyatira and the connection possibly with what was going on in the city with what we see our Lord speaking about in this letter? Now, you remember Lydia in Acts chapter 16, who was a seller of purple? She was from the city of Thyatira, a city which was known for its manufacture of woolen goods and especially prominent in the dyeing industry. She was a seller of purple. She no doubt had been uh, a merchant who was very active in this uh, industry in Thyatira. And so Thyatira exported many wonderful and good scarlet and purple goods uh, using wool and cotton uh, extensively. And so there was much for commerce by the time this letter was written to the church in Thyatira. And it brings warmth to the heart to think of our sister Lydia, who had grown up there and was a native of Thyatira originally. Now, the church at Thyatira was not persecuted to the same degree as were the churches of Smyrna or Pergamos. It was not prominent as much as they were regarding Satan. We read in, we read in Pergamos that Satan's throne and his dwelling was there. 
Smyrna was a poor little rich church, as we heard recently. But this church in Thyatira did not know the extensive persecution of those two churches, nor was it a place that Satan would place the central place of his throne or his dwelling. So this is not the most significant of all the cities. And yet the letter from our Lord is the lengthiest and most involved of all. Now, it's a bit difficult to understand this letter because <coughs> it's the most enigmatic of all the letters. Terms like Jezebel, speaking of the, the, the depths of Satan, things that on the surface are very difficult to understand. And even when you learn something of the history of Thyatira and what went on there, there's still a multiple op uh, option for how you would interpret these things. So one would be tempted simply to brush through this epistle, not understand these things, and move along. But I do believe there's much here for our edification, for our warning, for our building up in the faith, and to warn those who might not be in the faith as to the work of our Lord. Now, the way I want to do it tonight is to divide it up into five parts, five headings. First of all, we will notice, the Lord willing, Christ's personal attributes that are especially pertinent to the needs of this church. The unveiling or the expression or the expounding of Christ's personal attributes that are especially pertinent to this church at this time. In the second place, we will note Christ's personal commendation of the church in Thyatira. His personal commendation. In the third place, Thyatira's peculiar sin. The thing our Lord is most concerned about in his exhortation to the church in Thyatira. And in the fourth place, Christ's gracious patience as it is exhibited in this letter to the church in Thyatira. And fifth, Christ's burning wrath, which is about to fall upon many who are connected with the church in Thyatira. First of all, then, notice with me Christ's personal attributes that are especially pertinent to the church at Thyatira. And immediately you recall that this is the formula in each of the letters to the seven churches. The Lord introduces himself by some of the attributes or some of the pictures that we observed in the first chapter. In the prologue of the book of Revelation, our Lord is seen in that vision and he is described with that awesome description of apocalyptic grandeur. And he selects one or two of those traits in each of these letters and points to them as he addresses these people. In this case, the Lord definitely has something in mind as he addresses the people of Thyatira. He's got something on his mind and he wants to bring it to their attention. And he is not by accident, willy-nilly, grabbing some of his attributes and some of these pictures without meaning. He has something to say and he wants to draw attention to the particular aspects of his person that will make them to humble themselves under him and his voice. There are two that he draws attention to. In verse 18, he says, these things says the son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like fine or burnished brass. Now, what does he mean? First of all, look at this phrase, eyes like flaming fire. He has eyes. Now, in each case, we've noted that the Lord says, I know. He knows their works. He knows the good. 
He knows the bad. The emphasis here on our Lord's eyes are that he sees. Not just what we see, but he sees as the Son of God sees. His eyes penetrate everything. He knows all. Not just what others can see, but what others cannot see. He knows not only how we are acting, he knows why we are acting as we act. He knows the heart. And he knows things about our hearts that we may not even know ourselves. You see, our sin is such that it blinds us to itself. The sinner does not know how deeply a sinner he is. We think we've confessed our sins often when we've yet to understand the very depth and breadth of them. It's always safe to assume that you're more filthy than you feel, that you're more guilty than you think, because you are. The Lord knows things about you you don't know. He sees. He says later in verse 23, notice, all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, or the reins. The old biblical term, the old King James term, the reins. Literally meaning the innermost part of the man or the woman. He searches. It's not just that he takes a glance. He unravels it down to its minute elements and knows all there is to know about the ins and the outs of all of us. There's not a thing to be done to hide from his eyes. He sees all. Now to remind you of the biblical doctrine of this aspect of our Lord Jesus' omniscience, let me direct your attention to Hebrews chapter 4. Please turn with me to the book of Hebrews the fourth chapter, a very familiar passage. Now, I submit that there's more involved in this passage in verse 12 and following of Hebrews chapter 4 than simply the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the word of God is the subject of the sentence. But it's more than the written word. It has attributes that the written word alone would not have unless it were for the one who is the author of the written word. It includes the written word. But the element spoken of and emphasized in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 is speaking of a person. And this person is the one who has been set forth in the book of Hebrews as better than Moses, as better than the angels, as one who has now spoken and we must submit to his voice if we neglect the great salvation which has been spoken by our Lord and confirmed by signs and wonders, we shall not escape. So notice verse 12 of Hebrews 4. The word of God is alive or living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And look what he says in verse 13. And there is no creature hidden from his sight. 
But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account or before whom we do an act. There is nothing that can be hidden from his sight. Not even the intentions and thoughts of the heart. Not just the thoughts, but the motives behind the thoughts cannot be hidden from his eyes. We are in this passage, as it were, laid naked and open. And that term naked and open is, a, is a, probably an old surgical term. It's either a surgical term or a sacrificial term, and it can be used either way. The sacrificial aspect was the lamb of the sacrifice was laid on, on the sacrificial altar and his head taken back and his neck laid bare, ready for the knife. Opened up and ready for the knife. Helpless, without able to escape the coming down of the knife to cut the throat and slay the animal. Open and bare. Naked and vulnerable before him with whom we have to do. The surgical aspect of the term literally refers to a doctor doing surgery and opening up the abdominal cavity while the patient is asleep under anesthetic. And the doctor opens up the abdominal cavity and looks inside and explores every part of the inward part of the man. That's what the terminology means. Before the eyes of the Lord, the living word of God, there's not an aspect of our motives that are hidden. And we are, as it were, under anesthetic. We're not able to do anything about it. We are at his disposal. We're vulnerable to him and he's having his way in searching our hearts. And there's nothing we can do to escape it. There's nowhere we can go. He's everywhere and he always sees us as a surgeon sees the inward parts of a patient. Now that's the eyes of the Lord. Now you can already begin to feel the pressure of this introduction on the hearts of the saints at Thyatira and those who are perhaps false professors. The Lord introduces himself as the Son of God with eyes. And these eyes are flaming fire. They're more than just deeply penetrating. They are eyes that blaze in hatred and anger against sin in all its forms. And especially against the peculiar sins that will destroy the witness of Christ in the world through the church. His eyes see it all and his eyes are burning against it. That's the introduction. That's the first thing the Lord wants us to know. This is who's speaking to you in Thyatira. The Son of God, whose eyes are a flaming fire. And what happens to the conscience when they hear that? If you believe it, you start scurrying around a bit in your heart. You start squirming in your spiritual seat. You start thinking, what's he about to say? What's he about to do? Those who come to the house of God relatively unprepared, without having searched the scriptures much except the bare minimum, without having prayed diligently that the Lord would open their hearts and probe them, they come to a church 
and they, they kind of expect that some preaching is going to be done. And they learn this habit of being able to insulate themselves to some degree against the heaviest weight of the Word of God. One of the subconscious and psychological tricks that people play when they come to a church, they actually get into the habit of letting their sleepiness be their excuse for not giving themselves to the Word of God. And they begin to expect every week how they're going to arrange to be sleepy at church time. And sometimes it's for no other reason than to evade the eye of Jesus Christ as he searches through the preaching of his word. You see, the way the Lord searches us to, so that we know what he sees is when his word is expounded and applied to our hearts. That's the crucial reason that the Bible has to be preached in churches more than just expounding data, more than just instructing history, but it has to be applied to the conscience. The scripture and its understanding has to be opened up because if it's not, people can go through life, memorize the Bible, and never have dealings with God. The Lord doesn't allow it to be so. He addresses a church and reminds them in the address that he has eyes. And these eyes are like a flame of fire blazing against sin and burning its way to the heart of the matter. But in the second place, he says that his feet are like fine brass or burnished or brazen feet. They're polished. They're finished. They're perfectly finished. Now, this relates to another aspect of our Lord, the inflexible immovable, irresistible power of the risen Christ. His feet are like finished brass. He is immovable. He is irresistible. He is inflexible in his power so that when he comes to judge his enemies and to judge the unrepentant, nothing will be able to escape the crushing blows of his steps. In his train are the ground powder of unrepentant sinners who thought they could stand up to him, but his feet are not to stop. You will not only not avoid his eye, you will not resist his march. He sees it. He's coming to deal with it. You will not escape. These are finished brass. These feet are solid. They're hard, and they crush what's before them. The significance of the scripture text is awesome to us when it says, Kiss the son while he's in the way, lest he be angry. In other words, make your peace with the son of God before he arrives. Don't have him come and find you unrepentant. Don't have him come and find you still talking about the day you may repent. Don't have him come and hear you chatting about how serious this begins to look. Don't let him come and deal with you as an unrepentant sinner. His feet are brazen and they'll trample you down. That's the one that introduces himself to the church in Thyatira. These are Christ's personal attributes, especially pertinent to this church. They're not just there for us to sit back, get a mental picture and say, well, that's a nice, interesting picture. Flaming fires. Boy, I'm glad Jesus has eyes of flaming fire and brazen feet. What a... Yeah. No, no. It applies to the conscience of a church that's nigh on about to lose it. And he's coming to deal with it. And he will not spare when he comes. Yes, the Lord has something on his mind. And he wants to begin to cultivate their conscience to prepare them for what he's about to say. That leads us to the second heading. We've noticed Christ's personal attributes especially pertinent to the needs of the church at Thyatira. 
In the second place, notice his personal commendation. Now notice the church here. In verse 19, he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and patience. And as for your works, the last are more or greater than the first. Now, I believe that what he's saying here, I know your works. And then he summarizes those works under four categories. The works of love, service, faith, patience, or endurance, or steadfastness. This word patience doesn't mean just sitting back and waiting. For someone to arrive. It means persevering under pressure, under stress, continuing on even though it's easy to quit. Not giving up, not growing weary in well-doing, but continuing to do what's right even if it does not seem to be bearing fruit and getting you the reward that you want. He says, I know your works. Not like Ephesus, who were declining in love. They had left their first love. They were leaving the ardor of the faith. But this church, the first attribute, the first work that he mentions, love, charity, their habit of loving the brethren, of loving the Lord, so that it expresses itself in the second word, service, ministering one to another, a church that's happy together, a church that enjoys doing for each other, a church that looks for opportunities to serve, a church that is not only not declining from its first love, but the latter works are better than the first. They're growing in their mutual love for one another and their affections for Christ. He mentions faith as well. Apparently, they're growing in faith. They believe Christ. They love Christ. They love his people, and that is showing itself in an ever-proliferating life of mutual ministry and service. Well, what in the world could one have against such a church? Well, it's the same kind of thing we saw in Ephesus, a church that was utterly orthodox in its teaching and utterly solid in its church discipline. But its heart was dying. Here's a church that has its heart ardent, But it has another kind of problem. You see, love is mentioned first here. I think that's significant. Of the works that are summarized, love is the first. It's the most prominent. It's the one easiest to be noticed among the brethren and others at Thyatira. They are marked by an ardent affection for Christ and one another, especially the latter. And this characteristic of ardent affection... And this sense of well-being and happiness together, I believe to be the problem. Not bad in itself. No, no. Ephesus is the, is the lesson to us that a church must cultivate its love and must grow in its love and affection. But here's a church that has no problem in that area, and yet the Lord is about to come and do a drastic thing. His eyes are burning against this church. Because he has something against them. Because their particular attitude of love is translated as well, not only in service, but in tolerance and softness. It's a church that is tolerant and soft in doctrine and in practice. In spite of the commendation. It's a church that in the name of love and with commended love, has lost sight of something very important and crucial. There are churches in our day, brethren, who are filled 
with I love you's. And they're also filled with trading wives and unpaid debts and profane men and temper tantrums and radical lifestyles and half-clad women and shameless women and men who have no leadership and strength in their own homes and pastors whose mouths are undisciplined and churches who gossip and yet they, I love your brother, I love your brother and they do for each other and they do things and serve and they give their money and they're active and the church is thriving and they're filled with multitudes and they have building programs and yet filled with filth in the midst of the filling of the affection. They're all around It's not hard to find the church. Well, maybe it is hard, but you can find them if you look long enough where folks are friendly and folks will take the shirt off their back for you and folks will come up and we're hardly knowing you, hug your neck and say, I love your brother. I always have trouble with that myself, not because I don't want to be loved and not because I think that's bad, but if a guy doesn't know me, I'm always leery of what he means when he says, I love you. He doesn't know who I am. I want him to know me a bit better before he is that open with me, especially because of my experience where those words flow out so easily and what follows is not always in keeping. Don't, that doesn't mean I don't want you all to tell me you love me. It doesn't mean I don't want you to tell each other you love each other. But I mean that there are churches filled with those words and with a lot of art and affection one for another who've got a much more deep and serious problem. I'm not saying that you need to guard against having affection. I think it's a, it's a very insidious danger, especially among churches like ours, that we get so smug in doctrine that we don't notice each other. It's a dangerous thing that we don't feel for brethren and feel warmly toward them. And it's a duty continually to cultivate that among brethren. It's not enough to sit in your place, come and go, and never go out of your way to go find out what's going on in the life of anybody else. One of the prescriptions of our counseling is, when someone comes with a life full of problems, one of our answers, go minister to somebody else. Go find somebody else with a problem. One of God's ways of silencing our complaints about what's going on in us is to show us that somebody else has a need that leaves ours in the dust in comparison. No, I'm not saying don't love each other, don't reach out, don't cultivate this because Ephesus is a standing testimony against such. But I am saying here's a church the Lord commands for its love and then says, I have somewhat against you. And that brings us to the third point, Thyatira's peculiar or particular sin. The one that has disturbed the Lord enough to write this smiting message to them. In verse 20. He says, nevertheless, oh my, you know what it's like when someone comes to you and says, I really appreciate you and I think the world of you and I really like you and love you, but have you ever had that happen? And it's like a knife through the heart when you hear that, nevertheless, you don't want to hear it. You want people to have nothing good but good to say about you and to you. You want them to love everything about you and like everything about you. Well, if you want that, don't enter the pastorate. If you want everybody to like everything about you, don't put yourself up in front so they always see all of your problems and all of your weaknesses and all your stupidity and notice all your grammatical mistakes and everything else. Don't do anything in public like that if you want to be liked for everything you do. You have to develop a bit of a hide in order to live in that kind of atmosphere. You know what you feel like when somebody says, nevertheless? What about when your Lord says it? 
You've grown. You've shown your love and faith and service, and I commend you nevertheless. And you see, the commendation is over. The rest of this thing for several verses is dealing with sin. Don't get too restive under the searching preaching that deals with sin. Don't demand every sermon have an equal amount of commendation and condemnation. Don't say, you've got to be balanced, Pastor. I'm well aware of that. But the Lord Jesus himself is not under any restrictions. And each time he speaks to have an equal balance in his words of comforting things and discomforting things. When we get to Laodicea and to Sardis, you will notice our Lord is not under any binding balance or sense of it. He gives commendation where it's due. And he searches out sin when it needs to be searched out. In Thyatira, apparently, his concern for their sin is more extensive than the notice of their things that are commendable. So here he says, their peculiar sin, I have a few things against you. Because you allow that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and beguile my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. That woman Jezebel, you allow her. What is their peculiar sin? The tolerance of heresy in the church. Ephesus had tried those who claimed to be apostles and were not and found them to be liars. And the Lord commended Ephesus. Thyatira tolerated it. They allowed it. Now, apparently, this has been going on for some time. In verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent. This is a long-standing problem. It didn't just come up last week. It wasn't just one word from a pulpit or a Sunday school class, and the Lord runs down and jumps on the church. Churches are going to have problems arise in them. And people are going to rise up in churches and do wrong and say wrong. It's the church's duty when those things happen to deal with it. Graciously, patiently, but firmly and clearly. This church hadn't dealt with it. Hadn't even thought of dealing with it. Had no intention of dealing with it. The Lord apparently had sent warnings. No results. Now this is largely compared to the church in Pergamos. Look back quickly, if you will, to the previous message to the angel of the church in Pergamos in verse 12. Verse 13, he says, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's seat is, and on and on. And then in verse 14, but I have a few things against you. Because you have there those that hold the doctrine of Balaam. And what was Balaam's doctrine? Well, he taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel. And what was that stumbling block? Something designed to make them fall from their faith and lose their standing with God. That's what a stumbling block is. Not something that makes them mad at you. It's not an offense in the Bible sense of it if you make somebody upset with you. Somebody doesn't believe in drinking Cokes, you drink a Coke, he's mad, you've offended. That's not the biblical doctrine. The biblical doctrine of offense or stumbling block is that what you do causes another person, either by watching you or listening to your teaching, do the same thing and thereby condemn himself. That's the stumbling block. You make him stumble in his walk with God and fall. Well, the doctrine of Balaam was a stumbling block for the children of Israel because it led them to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. 
Thus, in verse 15, you have similar things in your church as to those like Balaam, the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The Lord goes on. You see the parallel here? In Pergamos, the Balaamites. In Thyatira, Jezebel. In Pergamos, they were caused, the, the sin was caused by covetousness, covetousness and fellowship with the world, friendship with the world, which we dealt with last year. Here in Thyatira, it's caused by heretical teaching and the allurements of a woman who appears to have worldly power and who claims to have wisdom from God. In Pergamos, it's re- the order is reversed. First, the worship of idols, then fornication. Here in Thyatira, Fornication is mentioned first, then that leads to the worship of idols. There's not surprising. In almost all idol worship in the world, sexual immorality is connected with the worship. And if you want to get into, into, into fornication, you can practice certain types of idolatry and they actually support it and encourage it, provide it. That's what happened in Israel under Manasseh. Remember, in Jerusalem, in the temple, Manasseh had built booths for perverts. To sell their bodies. Homosexuality was practiced in the temple. And God, that's what brought the wrath of God upon them. The ultimate expression of their rebellion against God and their pride. And always connected to the Israelites would go off to these other gods. And then you would find them out committing whoredom. Not only from God, but in real physical terms. Throwing their wives to other men and trading wives and living in debauchery. And a lot of times I'm convinced certain people actually go into idol worship and false religion because of the fleshly benefits that they're going to get. Sometimes people are sincerely religious and they go after a wrong God and then are led in to the immorality. But often it's the immorality that leads them into the idolatry. But either way, immorality and idolatry always result from error and always lead to error. Whether apostasy comes from secret lust or whether it comes from open doctrinal error, the results are just as horrid, just as polluted, and just as tragic. If you remember our series of messages on apostasy, we stated that there were basically three forms of apostasy. People either leave the worship of God or the truth of God or the holiness of God. They either fall away in practice or in doctrine or in worship. And in this case, their doctrine and their practice are being polluted by this teaching of this Jezebel. Now, I think that we ought to pay a bit of attention to this woman, Jezebel. Why does the Lord pick this name? Now, it's possible that there was a woman in the church at Thyatira whose name was Jezebel. It would not be surprising, though, to find that this was a term employed by our Lord to draw our minds back to something else in description of this whoever it was in Thyatira. In order for us to get the imagery into our consciences, turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 16. I want to run you through briefly the experience in Israel of that lady Jezebel. 1 Kings chapter 16. We begin in verse 31. Speaking of Ahab and his his great sin 
In verse 30, this Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. And he went and served Baal and worshipped him. You see the connection here. Yes, he went and served Baal, but what got him to go and serve Baal? He married the daughter of Ethbaal, Jezebel. As though it were a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that weren't enough. That was no big deal. He, of all things, married the daughter of the king of the Sidonians, a foreign woman whose father and whose people worshipped Baal. And as a result of his marriage to her, he bought into her idols and went and worshipped and he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. So here's the king of Israel marrying a foreign woman and going after her gods. Now notice Jezebel, the progress of her influence. Turn to chapter 18, verse 19. Elijah is calling a meeting. Of himself and all the false prophets. And he says, therefore, in verse 19 of First Kings chapter 18, Send and gather all Israel to me on Mount Carmel. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Look at the woman. She's collected prophets. 400, perhaps 850, if the reference is that all of them ate at her table. And she is feeding them, whining them, dining them, giving them a place in Israel, setting them up in high profile. She is promoting her godless idol worship and her fornication to all Israel. Her influence has grown. Then in chapter 19, verse 2, her attitude toward God's prophet Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. Did you see what had happened? Elijah had executed all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and Jezebel heard about it. And she sent a message to Elijah and said, Buddy, I'm going to do the same thing to you. I'm killing a man who killed all my prophets. Here's a woman who's queen in Israel. The prince of God. Israel. Who's killing the prophet of God. Then in chapter 21, verse 7. She stands behind the king. Old Ahab. A mixed bag. If ever there was a mixed bag. A man of unpredictable attitudes. Virtually spineless, though, when the bottom line is reached, with this woman standing behind him, egging him on. Remember what happened? He wanted Naboth's vineyard next to the palace. Naboth said, this is a family vineyard. It would be sin for me to give you that which is for my fathers and my mothers, my ancestors, and for my progeny. I can't do it. What did Ahab do? King of Israel, what did he do? He went home, wouldn't eat, turned his back to everybody, to face to the wall, and Cried. He put a, had a royal pout. Well, Jezebel 
long since have lost respect for the guy. You ever marry somebody and forsake your own God in order to marry somebody, you'll never have a respect. You ever marry anybody, young women, and you parents let your daughter do it. You let her date him. She's not going to win him to Christ. She's going to convince him Christ isn't worth anything. If a Christian will... Wait a non-Christian. That non-Christian will not hear a word he says about Jesus. All he'll hear is, Christians can be had. Christians love me more than Christ. They'd rather have a date with me than to have the smile of God. It's a serious thing to allow people to cohort with unbelievers for the purpose of marriage. You say, well, my daughter's not intending to marry him. Then what's she doing going out with him? Oh, well, you've got to have friends. Not that kind of friend. Not if you're listening to the book of Proverbs. Well, there aren't any of her age in the church. Well, give yourself to prayer and you go witness to some parents who have some daughters and get them in. You're not going to buy your way into the kingdom of God by giving your daughter what she demands and feeling sorry for her to her destruction. No, no, this man is a wimp. His wife knows it. Watch what she does in verse 7 of chapter 21. You now exercise authority over Israel. (laughs) That's, That's the attitude. Arise and eat food and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Egging Ahab on. And herself plotting to do it. You know how she did it. Verse 9 through 16. She worked it out to have Naboth killed. Stoned under false pretenses. Falsely accused. Stoned to death. And then... She came and announced to Ahab, now you can go take it because Naboth is dead. And so in verse 16, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab got up and went down to take possession of the vineyard of Naboth. Now you see, the impression here is Ahab didn't know what happened, how he died. Jezebel took care of that in private. All he knew was he's dead. Not my fault. Providence got the, got the land. It's not the case from God's vantage point because it was announced by the word of the Lord through Elijah the the Tishbite when he spoke to Ahab in verse 19. Have you murdered and also taken possession? No question in God's mind who's guilty here. The head of the house is the one guilty for the sin of this woman. My dear men, You want to be a husband? I want to tell you if you want to be a husband, the judgment of God is heightened unto a husband. You like the idea of having the rule of a house? You like to be Mr. Big Shot? You like telling your wife and kids what to do and quoting Bible verses saying they're supposed to submit? You like that position? Let me tell you what that position implies and entails. You're the one that gives account to God for the spiritual well-being of your family. Their progress is your responsibility. Ahab's wife had this man stoned by some other people and Ahab's the one that's called a murderer by the prophet of God. Is it worth it to you to keep peace with you, sweetie? And have God angry with you? 
Ahab completely lost his conscience in all this. The king of Israel. Serving God. God's king. No conscience. Letting his wife run things. She all did this for Ahab's good, right? She couldn't stand to see her hubby being pushed around, so she took care of matters for him. She went to bat for him. She took care of it so that this measly little king could get this land. Wickedness. All for her precious husband's sake. Stirred him up. Look at verse 25. There was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord. Because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Behind every good man, there's a woman. There may be somebody like that behind every evil man. God help us women. You mothers and you wives... Don't you stand behind wickedness. Don't you egg on anybody to do wrong. Don't you stand behind it. Don't you do it. You earn to yourself the name Jezebel when you do it. Don't you do it. She turned the prophets of God to idols. She turned against the true prophet of God. She promotes and abets error and filth throughout the land. And she'll stop at nothing, even murder. To have her idolatrous ways. You see what had happened? Ahab married for political expedience. And he got in trouble. Maybe some of the people in Thyatira. Were joining some guilds. For economic expedience. And they were beginning to loosen their grip on truth. And morality. They were having to have social intercourse with people who were practicing idolatry and fornication, and apparently someone had begun to speak in the church, and I personally believe it was a female who was allowed a voice in a church against the law of the apostles in the first place, and then the voice that she was allowed to speak was a voice that was not in keeping with the truth, but it was a voice that promoted something that we believe is connected with the Nicolaitans and the Balaamites and all the first century antinomians, as she would say something like this. The Lord spoke to me in a vision and has told me that in order fully to appreciate his salvation, the way to do that is to find the depths of sin. I've experienced the depths of Satan. And I've learned new truth about grace. If grace abounds over sin, then let's sin all the more so grace can abound. I've been down to the idol's temple. I myself have practiced fornication. I commend it in all how much it's made me appreciate the grace of God. Sound outlandish? It's not any different from what goes on in many evangelical churches today. I've heard preachers on the radio in Albany, evangelical preachers, conservative Baptist preachers on the radio in Albany, giving counsel over the call-in talk show on the Christian radio program. When someone said, I'm having a struggle with sin, what is it? Well, it's adultery. Well, first trust Jesus and don't worry about the sin. Let that take care of itself later. Because grace... Saves us from having to be worried about the law. Oh, thank you so much, Pastor. You've helped me so much. So in other words, all I need to do is accept Jesus and I can worry about my sins sometime later. Right. 
See, they, they failed to understand the basic truth of the gospel. There is no such thing as accepting Jesus without rejecting sin. You haven't accepted Jesus into your heart when you've invited him to join into the sin that already resides there. Jesus isn't Lord of your heart if sin sits on the throne. If you've not mortified, rejected, and turned away from sin, you've not turned toward Christ. You can't do one without the other. And this church is filled with that kind of thing in Thyatira. Ahab got into Jezebel's life for political expedience and it cost him his soul. It led to apostasy. She incited. She stirred. She beguiled. She taught the servants of Christ. She claims here in Thyatira to have the gift of prophecy. She claims to be a prophetess. Well, a lot of people are, are false or faked by that. Someone stands up and says, I'm a prophet. They believe it. Why would anybody claim such a thing if it weren't true? Nobody would dare claim to be a prophet of God if it weren't true. This one did. How do you get a hearing in a church unless you claim to be sent by God? Would you expect anybody to stand up and say, Now, I don't think I have a word from God, but I'd like for you to listen? Would you expect someone who wants to lead people into her idolatry not to claim that she has God's mouth to speak with? Don't be led away just because somebody says he or she is a prophet of God. That doesn't mean that they are. Here she claims to know the depths of Satan. And those that follow her, oh, they have knowledge. They have deeper insight. Their theology is progressive. They've uncovered some new truths. They're living bribes to the proud and the intellectual who love some new thing. All cultists specialize in new truth. Special revelation that goes a bit beyond or around the Bible. Whether it be Ellen White or Charles Russell or Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or any of the modern Eastern religionists or the New Age people who can't find any truth in in our lifetime, so they go back centuries and discover themselves in another body in another time and get credence on the news hours at 6 o'clock and make the circuit of the talk shows and have Christians actually sitting up at night listening to them. The corruption of the Thyatira church's purity is the same substance as that of the corruption of Israel by Jezebel. That's why the Lord uses her name. There's a Jezebel among you, he says. And she's corrupting the purity of your church by teaching doctrinal error. And that teaching is designed to beguile them into committing idolatry and fornication. It's a teaching that says these things are to be practiced by Christians. It's a part of the doctrine. She's teaching it. And they're doing it. Boy, that's all you would need, wouldn't it be? With your temptations in the world as it is to have an official servant of God to tell you it's, all, it's okay. It's all you need. Or at least to turn the other head when you're doing it. And if we willingly and knowingly receive people into the membership of this church who are living in that kind of practice, we are saying it's okay. If we willingly and knowingly keep people in the membership of this church who are practicing that stuff, we are saying it's okay. If you as a church 
know someone in the church who is practicing fornication, practicing those categorical sins that are condemned in Scripture as not being in keeping with Christian faith, and you keep it to yourself in the name of just Christian charity, you are saying it's okay, and you're endangering the very blood and life of the church. You're certainly bringing down our testimony. Because some people know how they're acting. Some people know what they're doing. And those people assume that since they're still members in good standing here, that this pulpit agrees with it, that you agree with it, and your name goes right down to the depths of their sin. You are seen to be no better than they. You want that? I don't want that. I don't believe a church ought to tolerate it. They were tolerating teaching which was corrupting the church. Killing its good works and bringing it into the most degenerate kind of lewdness and error. What greater things can you bring into a church than a worship of idols and fornication? They are practicing this thing in Thyatira. These aren't just things they've thought about and that are, they are doing them. And they're tolerating one who's teaching them and has a following of disciples. It's hard to imagine. Perhaps we're more sophisticated in our day. Maybe some of that, those kinds of sins are being practiced in our church and we're keeping it under our hats a bit better. Well, at any rate, the Lord is not pleased. But notice before we enter into his wrath about it in the fourth place, look at his gracious patience. In verse 21, the Lord, knowing this is being taught, knowing it's being listened to, says, I gave her space to repent. If you go back and read the story of Jezebel, you'll find that God gave her 15 years after Naboth's death before he killed her. 15 years. Time to repent. He gave this church space to repent. He gave this Jezebel space to repent. He didn't come and snuff her out. He didn't bash her. He didn't eliminate her. He gave her time. This evil had been long standing. But the Lord never strikes without warning. And he never strikes without the opportunity for us to rescue ourselves from the strike. The Lord apparently had warned the church through preaching. He had brought it to the attention of the church. And nothing had been done. Now notice something about this gracious patience of our Lord and this patience which marks him in dealing with all his people. In the first place, it makes possible our salvation. When you find out how wicked you are and when your conscience is smitten by what your sin is and Christ shows you that it's not his fault you're in the mess you're in, it's your fault. It's good for you to know that. His patience is enough to give you time to repent. Very seldom. If ever, and I don't believe I know of a case in the Bible or in history where God ever for the first time revealed the person's sin and then slay, slew him before he had a chance to repent. That's not the way God works. Now, some people think it was the first time God showed them. 
Some people think that they've been unfairly treated when the wrath finally comes. They're going to be a whole host of sinners one day at the judgment of Christ when he comes and the moon's going to turn to blood and the sun's going to blacken out and the great quaking of the earth is going to happen and everything, all the elements are going to melt with the fervent heat. There are going to be millions and millions and millions of people that are going to say, what's this? What have we done? Why didn't you warn us? And a lot of them will have been in churches like ours listening to preaching. They just don't believe it. They don't listen. When did I see you naked and I didn't clothe you? When did I know you were hungry and I didn't fill you? When did I do this? They're going to be shocked and amazed that the judgment is falling on them. Because his patience has waited and waited and waited. But not only does this patience give possibility for salvation, but also God's patience aggravates our guilt and our doom. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed. And in verse 23, I'll kill her children with death. That that phrase there literally means not just bodily death. I'm going to kill them with death, death. Ultimate, the eternal sting of death. I'm going to kill them ultimately. I gave her a chance to repent. She didn't. Those that are her her followers, I'm going to cast them into the sickbed. I'm going to cast her into the sickbed. It's too late for her. Those that follow her will experience the same if they do not repent. You see what happens to us in our pride while we prosper in our sin, we are dull to the sensitivity to what our sin's going to cost us. Know you not, says the Apostle Paul, that the long-suffering of God is leading you to repentance? It's not designed to make you get comfortable and lower your tenderness toward wrath. He's not giving you time in order for you to say, well, I guess it wasn't that serious. Don't be a fool. You may be sitting here prospering in this church tonight and the wrath of God may be swinging across your skull like the big pendulum with the axe on it. And it may be coming ever closer and you're sitting here without any knowledge of it and you're thinking the the fact that you haven't been slain proves that it's not that big a deal. And you sit under preaching and you just can't get into it. Condemning sin just doesn't shake you because you've been doing this so long and nothing's happened. Except this conscience you have and this miserable life you have and this wrecked and chaotic life. But you've learned, to, you've learned to live with that. God hadn't smushed you. He hadn't killed you. You still get to eat and drink and have some fun whenever you please. You get to turn to the dial. You like to have variety of entertainment. How can this be evidence of God's anger with me? And nobody in the church is rebuking me or admonishing me. It must not be that serious. I tell you, the patience of God is leading you to repent. Not to continue to sin. And if you do not repent, you heighten the doom. And you increase the power of his wrath upon you. So many people are blinded to the purpose of God's patience. And they become hardened to the truth. And their fears are relieved. So that when the punishment finally comes, it's utterly unbearable. In Romans 9.22, we're told, What if God, willing to show his power, has endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted for destruction? 
They are vessels of wrath fitted for destruction, and God has long endured them. Why? Don't ask me why, except at least to give them space for repentance. They'll never be able to say, I didn't have a chance. And any who sat under the preaching in this pulpit will never be able to stand in the face of Jesus Christ and say, you didn't get a chance. You'll never be able to say, Lord, they just didn't make application enough to my sin. Now, I'm not suggesting that we make enough application to your sin. I'm certainly saying that we make more than you need to repent. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 11 has an interesting and powerful verse. You can learn a lot from these poetic writings. Ecclesiastes 8.11 says, Because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. You see it? What makes them set their heart fully to do evil? It's the very patience of God in not bringing them down immediately. The delay in passing the sentence confirms them in their sin. Dear, dear brethren, please hear me. As your pastor, I know the duty of overseeing your soul. I know the shortcomings of my own doing of that. The burden is heavy. The fear is great. I am not by nature personally bold, privately, one-on-one. I don't like confrontation. I avoid it like the plague. Do not, however, believe that because I haven't come to you and nailed your conscience to the wall, that that means God has not noticed and God's not going to deal with you. Don't get off the hook with God because I may have not noticed or maybe I'm shy and haven't gotten around to it. The Lord is looking and the Lord will bring it upon you. Unless you repent. God help me to help you by not letting you go too long. God help us to help each other to rebuke and admonish one another. Especially as we see the day of judgment approaching. God help us not to help further the hardening of heart by the tolerance of sin. The Lord is gracious in his patience. But finally, take a look at Christ's burning wrath. We won't go back to 2 Kings chapter 9, but if you want to read the account of Jezebel's destruction, turn back to 2 Kings chapter 9 sometime, verses 30 through 37. The Lord, you remember, Jehu came through town. He did what nobody had done before him. He had them to cast Jezebel out of a window down onto the street and splattered her blood and her entrails over the street so that the dogs came and ate it all up and nothing was left but her skull and bones. The scriptures are graphic in describing And the Lord says about this, why would the Lord Jesus pick this name of all names to call this teacher in Thyatira if he didn't want us to think back on the history of Jezebel, including the final day and hour of Jezebel? Notice three things about, four things about this burning wrath. First, it is certain. I will cast her into a sickbed. She likes the bed. 
the very bed of her pleasure is going to turn into a bed of sickness. She has voluntarily gone into this bed. Now she can't get out of it. The very thing she's given herself to and taught others to do is the thing that kills her. The thing that used to be a testimonial to her liberty is now a monument to her bondage. Some of you thought you were free the first time you went beyond the law of God in some kind of immorality. And you found out soon enough that it was not the design of sin to free you, but to enslave you. Some of you, when you were young people, started smoking because it was a proof of your manhood or womanhood. It was a symbol of your rebellion, your pride, your independence. And now some of you, perhaps, as a grown person, have got that little stick ruling your life that used to be evidence of your running your life. Now you can't say no to a little white stick. It's the nature of sin. I'll cast her into a sick bed. I'll kill her children with death. She's gone too far. And her followers who don't repent will receive the same judgment she's to receive. The wrath of Jesus Christ is coming. There is not one chance that it will be abated. He's coming to judge the world and everyone in it. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whether they be good or whether they be bad. There's no exceptions to that in this realm. Every child that disobeys his daddy or talks back to his mother is going to answer for that before the Lord Jesus Christ. Parents, do you love your children? Do you love your children? Let me say this to you. I'm not, I don't know that I've ever said this. If they don't get saved, and if they grow up and go to hell, did you know that you can relieve some of the burden and the burning of hell by your restraint of their wickedness while they're in your home? You know it's a good thing to do for them. If, only, if the only reason they ever do right is because they're scared of the belt, you'll gain some ease for them. You'll spare them some judgment. Because every idle word they'll give account for. If you can stop them from an idle word by disciplining their tongue with a belt, you'll save them from some judgment. You hear that? You love your children? Learn to stop them from doing the things that will bring the wrath of God upon them. Husbands, you need to do the same with your wife. And I'm not suggesting badgering her and beating her into submission. I'm suggesting to learn the skill of husbandly love so as to help her save her soul. From her tongue, from her foolishness, from her fears. Love her enough to guide her and protect her and help her. The wrath of Christ is certain. Second. Not only is it certain, it's public. Verse 23, he says, The churches will know. Not just Thyatira. All the churches will know. When I bring my wrath, it's going to be in such a way everybody's going to know about it. At least everybody that has any discernment at all. When it comes, there'll be no hiding it. When Jezebel was thrown down, she was thrown down in front of everybody. Everybody saw it. The whole town. In the last day of judgment, we're told... That the books will be opened. That word opened ought to send chills in your spine. Because do you know what's in those books? 
They're going to be opened. Maybe we ought to describe it like the old tract writer. It's like the Lord running a newsreel of your life in front of everybody. I'm not sure that's accurate. I'm not sure it's that. I just know it's open. Unrepented sin is going to be exposed. Romans chapter 2 speaks of the revelation of the righteous judgment of God. How is the righteousness of the judgment of God going to be revealed? Because he's going to show the junk against which he's hot in anger. He's going to reveal all the stuff for which he's casting people into the lake of fire. That's the only way he can reveal the righteousness of it. How is it righteous, O Lord, that you cast Babylon down and shed her blood? Because she has shed the blood of all the prophets and the saints from the foundation of the world. How did they know that? God revealed it. The secret martyrdoms. The secret cursings of the pastors. The secret lines. The secret fornications. The secret worldliness are going to be exposed. All of it. Your wife and husband may never see it. Nobody in the church may ever see it in this world. The first time it ever comes public may be the day of judgment when it'll be too late. God help us to live with judgment day honesty and fear. God have mercy upon us who are lollygagging our way through our sins without any trembling before this day that's certain to come. And it's going to be public. Every eye shall see him. Brethren, that's one of the reasons I do not believe in, preach, or have any sympathy for a secret rapture. The Lord doesn't come secretly. Not, never in the Bible is it spoken of secretly. Never. Not one place in the Bible. And there's a simple reason for it. It's a day of judgment as well as blessing. It's an awful thing. Certain and public and awful I'll give them great tribulation, he says. You want to read chapter 18 of Revelation about the fall of Babylon, how he describes it. Don't turn there now. But it's going to be a horrible thing, an awful thing. Ezekiel describes Israel's judgment to come. It says he's going to deal with them as with adulteresses, burning their bodies with fire. Casting them out. Destroying them. God's view of this kind of sin is such that when God has to come and judge it, God has no mercy on it. To follow any teaching in the matters of salvation that are not right is to destroy your very soul. These people were following the teaching of this idolatrous and fornicating woman. And the result was going to be to be killed with death. The death, the second death. Old James understood it in chapter 4 when he spoke to adulterers and adulteresses. And he told them to repent and humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. Because, and then he spoke to the rich and he said, you've laid up your riches in the last days. Don't you understand? You're storing and hoarding all this stuff in the days when the Lord's coming is at hand. 
You've got yourself all trusting in stuff that is not going to last a hair's breath. The day of wrath is coming. That's what you need to be preparing for. Brethren, I, I respect those fools who wear those signs. Prepare to meet thy God down the streets of Manhattan. They're speaking the truth. I respect the courage. Maybe somewhere somebody will read it and believe it. And prepare to meet his God. Maybe perhaps we need just a few more fools for Christ. A little less sophistication. Maybe we need to have some street preaching. Maybe we need to have some people with some boldness that doesn't mind being called nutty. I don't know. I'm not promoting nuttiness. But perhaps we need just a bit less of this easy, sophisticated, calculated Christian witness and a bit more zeal for the house of God and fear for the day of judgment. I don't believe anybody could accuse me after these 12 and a quarter years in this place of promoting fanaticism. I don't believe anybody can do that honestly. But maybe maybe we need to loosen up a bit in the light of the judgment to come. Not only is this a certain public and awful wrath, but it's appropriate. It's appropriate. Verse 23, the last phrase, I'll give each one of you according to your works. It's not an irrational judgment. It's not an unfair, unjust thing. It's according to the works. The bed of fornication becomes the bed of sickness. That's the nature of things. God's judgment is appropriate. What was once voluntary sin is now permanent. I'll cast her into the bed. All the beauty of easy doctrine, the fleeting well-being of a comfortable church, happy with each other, but tolerant of wretched filth and sin. All that stuff of beauty finally become the objects of contempt and pity. Don't jump to conclusions when God prospers your church externally, brethren. Don't get easy in your life and begin to think, look how God's blessed us in spite of my continued purposeful, willful refusal to mortify sin. It may be that you're experiencing the gracious patience of one whose eyes are a flaming fire and his feet are burnished brass who is announcing his coming judgment and giving you one last opportunity to repent. Hear these applications quickly to add to the ones we've already mentioned. Albany Baptist Church, no matter how difficult, the removal of teachers and practices of evil may prove to be. The wrath to come must be diverted. If it means excising from the church leaven that would spoil the whole lump. I'm well aware of the need for balance. I'm well aware of the danger. I'm well aware that we must be gracious, that we must give every opportunity. I'm well aware that we're not to be a meat-cleaving kind of a people. I'm well aware of searching out the matter, interviewing, making sure all the facts are established. I'm well aware of the need to seek counsel. I'm well aware of it. But we must never tolerate 
the practice of anything that would bring down the testimony of Christ in the world in this place, or we ourselves will follow it and follow its judgment. God, give us discernment and holy courage in the light of what is certain to come and what will be utterly unbearable in the judgment of Christ. But another thing I want you to notice, God is infinitely merciful. He forgives the most heinous sins. Oh, he's patient. He's slow to anger. Our God is saying here, except they repent. These are people that have been worshiping idols and committing fornication, and they still have the option of repenting. So don't take the judgment and the wrath to come as a reason to go home and cry yourself in despair. Repent tonight and go your way rejoicing that God has warned you and you fled from the wrath to come. That's the purpose of the preaching. But not only is God infinitely merciful, understand he's not eternally merciful. The time will run out. Your time for repentance will end. It'll seem sudden to you. It'll seem as though you didn't have enough chance. It'll seem unfair. But alas, you've been warned. And finally, brethren, just an implication of all this. If the wrath of Jesus Christ will come upon a church for tolerating false teaching and following false examples, Let me remind you that your ears belong to God and were created for God's truth. And the ears of your children belong to God and were created for God's truth. Don't listen, don't heed, and don't follow the teaching of error and don't tolerate it in your home, in your church, anywhere in your ear are in the ear of any over whom you have authority and for whom you have responsibility. Shut your ears to error. Don't tolerate it. And it'll spare your soul. Let us pray. Father, we would pray that you would take these words and bind them as they may have conformed to the truth to every conscience. We give you our thanks that you have been merciful to this church. We pray, O Lord, that if there is hidden sin in any of us that has grieved you and that is bringing your anger against us, that you, in your infinite mercy, would reveal it and remove it and save us. O oh Lord, our God, make us a people who genuinely live with tender and sensitive consciences, who have an eye for the day of judgment, and who dread it and fear it in the sense that we would want to do nothing to endanger us or others. O Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that has saved us from that wrath. May we by your spirit live in the light of such salvation 
and no more practice anything that accompanies those that are going to come under that wrath. Oh, Lord, have great mercy upon these people and make our hearts to burn with these truths throughout our days. Save us from the sins of Thyatira. We ask it in the name of our all-seeing and gracious Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.